Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We have been reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts. And if you were uh, here last week, you might remember that the Apostle Paul re-entered into that story after being absent for a while after his conversion. Uh, And he and a guy named Barnabas taught together for a year in Antioch, and they established a church there. And then they took up a relief collection for the poor in Judea and took it there. And when they came back to Antioch, the church there uh, sent them out in mission. And the church has always referred to that as Paul's first missionary journey. We're going to drop in on that on the seventh major stop in that journey. It's a city called Lystra. So I'm going to read from Acts 14 for us, verses 8 through 23, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed uh, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 14. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had, the, had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that through this word that we've read and heard together that we'll talk about together, that you would do what seems uh, so strange for us to ask, but it's your promise that you'll do it. That you would use this word to lead us to the word incarnate who bears our flesh, who's seated at your right hand, who's praying for us right now. Show us Jesus' grace and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Well, one of, uh, one of my favorite Hitchcock films is his 1959 chase picture called North by Northwest. Uh, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint are in that movie. A couple years back, uh, Allison and I went to a screening of North by Northwest at the Music Box, and Eva Marie Saint was there for a talk back. And she was pure class. It was amazing to see her. Um, I think everything about that movie is pure class. That gray flannel suit that Cary Grant wears through the whole thing is so perfect. It looks so good that a lot of film buffs and film critics just refer to it as the suit. Like, like it's a person, like it's a character in the movie. Well, like several of Hitchcock's other films, uh, mistaken identity is at the heart of the story. And he masterfully sets up the whole movie in this scene that just really only takes about a minute and a half. Cary Grant is in a swanky New York City bar. He's meeting with a couple of business partners, and he is mistaken for a government agent named George Kaplan. He's mistaken to be a spy. And these two uh, impeccably dressed thugs come up beside him. They have these vaguely foreign accents, and they slide up beside him in the bar, and one of them is holding a gun, and Cary Grant says, who are you? And I won't do the accent, but thug number one says, mere errand boys carrying concealed weapons, and his is pointed at your heart. And so they start to shuffle him off to the car, and Grant says, what is this, a joke? And thug number two says, yes, a joke. We'll laugh in the car. It's like a perfect setup. They are absolutely convinced that he is someone that he is not. And it begins this incredible chase that streaks across the entire country and famously ends at Mount Rushmore. And I'm bringing that up because, of course, mistaken identity is at the heart of the story that we just read together, too. The folks in the town of Lystra are absolutely convinced that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They are convinced that they are Zeus and Hermes. Now, obviously, the irony of them being mistaken for gods is pronounced, and I'm pretty sure that Luke wants us as the readers to feel the comic part of it. But Paul's mind is usually in some kind of brilliant overdrive, and this is no exception. He takes this very striking case of mistaken identity as an opportunity to tell these folks about the living God, the one that he came to tell them about, whose good news they had come to proclaim. He says that God is nothing like the vain gods that you have spent your whole lives running in circles trying to please. He tells them, the God that I've come to proclaim has been doing good for you all along. And he alone can fill your hearts with joy and gladness. It is a good word, not just for those people, but for people like us too. So the story starts after Paul and Barnabas have landed in this town called Lystra. Lystra is a small working class city filled with mostly uneducated farmers, workers of the land, and they are a fully pagan people. We talked about that term a little bit last week. By pagan, I just mean that they have no frame of reference at all for the story of Scripture. They have no uh, idea at all of what the God that we find in the Old Testament has been doing in the world. They are genuine polytheists. They do service to whatever of the gods of the pantheon, 
that they thought would do them the most good. So archaeologists have uncovered a stone altar near Lystra, and it has engravings on it that suggest, not surprisingly at all, that Zeus and Hermes were the local gods of choice. So we'll get back to that later. There's Paul, though. He's in the public square in Lystra, and he is telling them about Jesus. And there's this guy listening to him who had been unable to walk since birth. And Paul sees him as he is talking. He sees the guy looking at him. Paul looks intently at him, Luke says. And somehow he can tell that this guy is on the precipice of faith. The phrase that Luke uses in verse 9 is is a really wonderfully ambiguous phrase. He said that he could Paul could tell that he had the faith to be made well. And made well could mean physically, it could mean spiritually, or as is often the case in the New Testament, it could mean both. And Paul somehow sees this and he tells him to stand up. And the guy does. And he starts walking around. And this is the event that makes the people there in Lystra think that they must be gods, come to earth in the likeness of men. But before we get to what happens next in the story, I just want to say that this pattern that we see with Paul, we see again and again in Jesus' life, and we see again and again in the lives of the first Christians. And that pattern is that word and deed are totally tied together in the witness of the first Christians, in the witness of Jesus. The the gospel is the announcement that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. And for the first Christians, that meant that the good news had to be both spoken and embodied. Because the good news for them wasn't something that was floating off in space somewhere. The good news for them and for Jesus is a truth that is meant to change not only our hearts, but the entire world (laughs) in which we live. In the gospel lesson that Rachel read, Jesus says, blessed are the hungry, because they're going to be satisfied. But you know, Jesus didn't just say that. He actually fed hungry people. He gave them food to eat. And his expectation for those of us who follow him is the same. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, church, and you ought to make that light shine by doing good works. Why? Well, Jesus says, because then this watching skeptical world will see those good works and they will trace them back to their source and they will glorify our Father in heaven. And Jesus does this again and again and again, and so did the first Christians. I mean, they believed what Jesus said, right? They believed what he said, that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. But the first Christians didn't just think with their heads, well, he came to give good news to the poor. They also collected money, like we saw last week, and they gave it to the poor. They embodied the good news. Paul and Barnabas took cash to Judea. They embodied good news. And when we do that, it is good for us. It is good for the people that we serve and minister to. And it is good for the watching and skeptical world. 
And honestly, church, as far as Jesus is concerned, there is no other way for us to faithfully follow him. It's never an either-or. It is always a both-and, words and deeds as followers of Jesus and in his kingdom are always intertwined. They are always together. So for some of us, that might mean that we need to think about how the good that we are doing is in fact tied to the good news, to the announcement of the kingdom of God. For some of us, that will mean that we need to make sure that the good that we are doing is tied to the gospel as an expression of gratitude for the good that has been done to us, as things that are done in Jesus' name. I probably don't need to tell you this because you know that there are ways to do good out of feelings of obligation and debt and guilt and shame. And if you've ever tried any one of those as a motivating factor or any combination of them as a motivating factor, then you know that in the end, if the good that we do is not energized by the gratitude that the gospel works in us, we just end up being tired and angry and judgmental and frustrated and cynical at the people around us who do not seem to be doing everything we think they should do. Well, the antidote to that church is to allow that glad generosity, like we talked about last week, to settle into our hearts. Jesus has done for us, and so now we turn that glad generosity out towards others. For others of us here this morning, though, that might mean that we need to ask ourselves the extent to which we are actually embodying the good news that we say we believe in this world. Because the good news isn't some abstract set of beliefs floating around somewhere in our heads or in the sky. We need to ask ourselves, what am I doing with my money? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my hands and my feet to embody the good news of Jesus in this world? It's an announcement of a kingdom and a rule that's arrived. It looks like something in flesh and blood in this world. And the antidote is the same. As we let that glad generosity foster in our hearts, as we let it grow in our hearts and fertilize our hearts, as we meditate on it, what it is that Jesus has done for us, it is a rule of faith that it just begins to flow out of us into the world around us. We love as we have been loved. It looks like something in flesh and blood in this world. So that's what happened at Lystra with the healing of this man. Uh, and the people that see it, they tumble headlong into what sounds to us maybe to be a really strange conclusion. They, they think these two strangers have to be gods come down to us in the likeness of men. Paul must be Hermes, the god who delivers messages from the gods to the people because he's the one doing all of the talking. Barnabas must be Zeus. And I know that may sound strange to us, but here's the thing. Just 50 years prior to this, Ovid wrote in his famous epic poem, Metamorphoses, about this ancient story that was supposed to have happened in the hill country of southern Galatia near Lystra. 
And in this story that Ovid tells, Zeus and Hermes come to earth in the guise of mortals and they knock on the doors of a thousand houses looking for hospitality, looking for lodging. And the doors of a thousand houses are shut to them. And then they finally make their way to this humble house that's made of straw and reeds from the marsh. And this elderly couple greets them and brings them in and feeds them and gives them a place to stay. And when their time together is finished, Zeus and Hermes destroy the neighbors in those thousand homes. And then they turn that marsh hut into a temple made of gold. So it's no surprise, is it, that lots of scholars, lots of writers think that that's the background for understanding what's happening in Lystra. It's likely that those folks know that story or some version of that story that it's been handed down to them and they are now running scared because they believe the gods are among them again. They spring into action. The local priest of Zeus brings out sacrifices to honor Paul and Barnabas. And church, that's just how it worked in polytheistic settings, you ran scared of the gods. And you placated the ones that you thought were going to be helpful to you in whatever setting you found yourself. If you were a farmer, you curried the favor of the god of the sun. If you were a fisherman, you went after the god of the sea. If you wanted your relationships to work out, you sucked up to the gods of love. And you crossed your fingers, and you hoped things would work out because the gods were capricious and mercurial and mostly they just did what they wanted to do. That was the worldview in which these folks lived. (laughs) That treadmill was the nature of their spiritual life. That was what they had and it was in every way enslaving. So Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, they see this honorage and they, and they figure out what's going on and they tear their clothes and they run out into the crowd and Paul assures them, we're just men, we're just men like you and I have some really, really good news from you. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. So right away, Paul sets up this antithesis, and it's a strong one. He says, on the one hand, you've got all these fake gods and all of this brouhaha and all of this vain, empty, enslaving stuff. And on the other hand, you have the living God. And he's not the God of this thing or that thing or the other thing. He is the God of everything. It's the classic antithesis of the Old Testament prophets. The antithesis between making and serving gods that can't do a thing and serving the real God. But of course, it's not as if the people of Lystra had heard that and just didn't buy it. It's not like they had heard the antithesis of the Old Testament prophets and thought, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure if that's the case. They had never heard any of that before in their lives. And so Paul appeals to what they do know, to the things that they experience every day in the flesh and blood of their real lives in order to show them what the living God is really like. In verse 17, he says, you didn't know it, but you've always had his witness. 
He has always been there. He's the one who did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. And unlike the gods who need you to satisfy them in the nervous, twitchy hope that maybe they'll give you what you need, this God is so, so different. He's the one who satisfies you. And all along, even though you didn't know it, he was the one. He was the one who satisfied your hearts with food and gladness whenever you felt contented even a little bit, whenever you felt a shade of happiness, whenever you felt at peace, whenever you felt full. That was the shadow of his goodness cast over you. That was his silent, beautiful witness in your life. And I'm just here to tell you who he is finally. What an amazing thing. (laughs) What an amazing thing to say to a people who had spent their lives imagining that they had to cow to, that they had to placate gods and goddesses who were concerned mainly with what they wanted and what they needed, who might do good for the petty humans if they felt like it. What an amazing thing to say to them. Paul says, I've got good news. The true God of the world, he's not like that at all. He doesn't need you to satisfy him. He satisfies you. And when you screw up, he's not waiting to squash you. He's waiting to forgive you. That's some good news. That's our Old Testament lesson Psalm 67, writ beautiful and large, let the nations be glad, let the nations sing for joy. And church, I want to say, let the church be glad and let the church sing for joy. Because this is good news for people like us too. I mean, we, we don't call them Hermes and we don't call them Zeus, but we've got a whole long list of things with other names that we treat as ultimate that we think will fill our hearts with gladness and joy. Some of them are obvious, right? Like money and power and control. Some of them are a little sneakier, a little trickier with names like family, relationship, success. But when we treat those things as ultimate, they work in our lives just like the fake gods of the Lystrans. We, we serve them with everything we've got in this nervous, twitchy, crossed fingers hope that they'll give us what we need. But church, those things were never meant to bear that kind of weight. They just cannot satisfy our hearts because we were made for something more than they could ever deliver. And when we serve them as ultimate with everything that we've got, we become enslaved and our our lives get all disordered and out of whack. And we start hurting the people around us. But the good news is that there is a living God by whom we have been made, for whom we have been made, who can satisfy our hearts forever. And following him in repentance and faith is to step out of that very real slavery and into freedom. He is not a petty, fake God of clawing and grasping. Jesus is the living God of self-giving love who happily laid his life down for us. 
And here's what happens when people like us follow him in faith. We find that all the other stuff in our lives that we were using to try to fill our hearts with gladness and joy, those things finally find their proper place. They finally find their proper uses in our lives. That's what Paul tells the folks in that little town that day. (laughs) It's probably the best day of their lives. And here's the epilogue to it. We don't know how much time passes, but it's a bunch of time. Enough time for the church to be established there, for disciples to be made, for a church to be established in another place, and for churches to be made that Paul's opposition catches up to him. And they convince people to drag him outside of the city and stone him, and they leave him for dead. Somehow he survives and he escapes to another town. You know, later on in life, Paul um, will write about being struck down but not destroyed. (laughs) He'll write about bearing in his body the marks of Jesus. I wonder, you know, if he was thinking about Lystra. I don't know. But he comes back. He and Barnabas come back and they check on all of these churches that they have started. And he comes back to strengthen them. And he encourages them to continue in the faith. I mean, no doubt, when they saw what happened to Paul, they probably thought, what have we signed up for? (laughs) Maybe some of them thought about giving up. And this is what he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you know, Paul knows what he's talking about. What he's saying is that if we follow a Jesus who suffered for us, then we should not be caught off guard at the suffering in our own lives. And so I think it's beautiful that before he leaves town once more, he and Barnabas set those leaders apart with prayer and fasting, and they commit that church to the Lord in whom they had believed. Precisely him and no other. The God who makes our hearts glad. The God who gives us good things. The God who satisfies us gladly with his self-giving love. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask (laughs) that you would help us to rightly hear this story and not not think to ourselves, oh, you know those people. (laughs) You know, they had it so bad. They thought some crazy stuff, and it's really good that Paul came to them and not also see ourselves in it. That we also run nervously after things that we think will ultimately give us joy and happiness and they never can and they never do. Father, help us to rightly order our loves beginning with Jesus, the living God who can fill our hearts with good things, who can satisfy us forever. Help us to rest in him in faith so that we can live the life that he has called us to live, a life of word and deed in this world. Father, do this for our good, do this for the good of the broken world around us, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.